And when you find Esther, go ahead and go to chapter 8. Chapter 8. I know our weeks are busy. You have all kinds of responsibilities, all kinds of things that you wanted to get to today, but you're going to have to get to them tomorrow. So I'm just so glad you came out tonight to be at church. There's other things I'm sure you could be doing. There's not really a lot I could be doing. I kind of have to be here, right? But I want to be here too, and I'm so glad that you do as well, and I hope that our time together in the Word of God is going to be helpful for your life. Esther chapter 8, this is our last sermon in our series called God Behind the Scenes. God Behind the Scenes, and we've been looking at the story of Esther. We've also been looking at our own lives and asking, how do I trust a God that I can't always see working? How do I follow a God, and how do I trust in his plan for my life and in the promises that he's made, if I look around and I have no clue what he's doing? Well, what we've understood is that Esther's story, perhaps like the story of our own lives, is not full of a bunch of obvious miracles. But when we look back at it all as one picture, we see God everywhere. And what we're going to find out tonight, as we look at chapters 8 through 10 and sort of finish up the series, we're going to realize that God was there the whole time keeping his promises. Let's just do a quick recap of the book. If you, Perhaps you've not been here in previous weeks, or uh, maybe you were here previous weeks and you still don't remember, that's okay. Uh, let's just go through the story uh, as we've seen it so far, last week on the channel Fellowship Baptist Church, okay? Ahasuerus is the ruler of Persia. Israel's in captivity. This impulsive ruler has replaced his first queen, Vashti, with a young Jewish woman, Esther. Mordecai, Esther's older cousin, gets a job at the capital city of Persia and is able to save the king's life. But Mordecai butts heads with Haman, the villain of the story, who decides that he will not only kill Mordecai, but just for good measure, go ahead and kill all of Mordecai's race of people. And so he has a plan to destroy them. Esther intervenes and throws a banquet. She invites both the king, her husband, and, Mordecai, and Haman. Haman, now emboldened by this invitation, decides that he's going to take matters into his own hands even more, and instead of just having a genocide on the calendar, he's going to have Mordecai publicly executed, and in the ancient world, that meant impaled. So after this, the story slows down. We find Ahasuerus can't sleep, as Haman is excitedly planning his next day. Ahasuerus, it just so happens, can't seem to get to sleep. And so he has read the account of Mordecai saving his life. And then he realizes Mordecai wasn't given a medal. Mordecai wasn't giving him any, uh, Mordecai wasn't given any honor. This heroic deed had went completely unrewarded. So Ahasuerus is thinking, how in the world am I going to honor Mordecai? Haman is out in the outer court of the palace. He wants to talk to the king. They have a brainstorming session. Haman tells him 
how to honor his best servant. And that leads to Haman in this first really bad foreshadowing for the villain, leading around Mordecai on a horse in the king's garments in the capital city. Haman is now worried about what this means for the future. He's rightly worried. He gets whisked away to the second banquet. Esther points her finger at Haman. She tells her husband, this is the man who is trying to kill me. Ahasuerus is confused. He leaves to walk around and and clear his mind and get some Tylenol. He comes back, and in a very strange turn of events, he watches Haman beg for his life, assumes he's trying to rape Esther, and Haman is killed on his own gallows. Now here we are at the fourth scene of the story. If this was a TV special, we would be in episode four, the finale, and you've been tuning in. But all has not yet been resolved. Now Haman's dead. There his body is, elevated about 70 feet in the air in the capital of Persia, the greatest empire in the world, a man who thought he was one of the greatest people in the world, but that's really not the end of the story. Because there is still a glaring problem. Now, yeah, our, our least favorite character is dead, right? And you could have saw that if you looked at, yeah, it looks like he's in episodes one, two, and three, but he's not cast in episode four. Well, now we know why, right? Because he's dead. But though we're glad that, there's, that this justice has been served, there's still a glaring problem facing Esther and Mordecai, and that is God's people... And, and, and with God's people, all of God's promises made to God's people are about to be destroyed. The bad guy's dead, but in a matter of months, all the Jews will be dead as well if something doesn't happen. Well, something does happen. Something does happen. You see, because God's promised people are in danger, his promises, God's promises are also in danger. And in order to keep his people... He'll have to keep his promises. Now, at this point, Esther and Mordecai, I just lost my watch. At this point, Esther and Mordecai, sometimes I get excited when I preach. Some of you don't believe that, but I just preached off my watch. Can you believe it? In case you were wondering. So, the way Esther and Mordecai see it, even though Haman's dead, pretty soon they're going to be in the ground as well. Or, in Haman's case, up in the air, right? So, How in the world is God going to keep his promises? How is God going to make good on the promise that the Messiah is going to come through the Jews and save his people? Well, that's the question that we have going into this, and that gives us our title, the God of Surprising Reversals. See, what we discover as we look at episode four is that God does keep his promises, but often he doesn't keep them in the ways that we would assume he would keep them. He keeps them through surprising reversals by taking something unimaginably bad and by the end of the story, turning it around. Now we have six such reversals beginning in chapter 8. So we're going to read these as we go through them. Here's the first reversal. Chapter 8, verses 1 through 4, the first reversal. A pagan ruler helps God's people. A pagan ruler helps God's people. Uh, Chapter 8, verse 1. On that day did the king Ahasuerus give the house of Haman the Jew's enemy unto Esther the queen. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was unto her. And the king took off his ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it unto Mordecai. 
And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. And Esther spake yet again before the king and fell down at his feet and besought him with tears to put away the mischief of Haman the Agagite and his device that he had devised against the Jews. Then the king held out the golden scepter toward Esther, so Esther arose and stood before the king. We'll pick up in verse 5 in just a second. Now remember, we were introduced to Ahasuerus as a man who had six-month-long drinking parties, and above all, a man who didn't listen to women. But here we are in episode four, and what's happening at the beginning of episode four? Ahasuerus is listening to women. (laughs) Not just that, but he is going to try to do the impossible and provide something to reverse this edict. We were introduced to Haman as a man who had it all, as a man who would not allow other people to snub him. If you snub Haman, now you've met people that don't like to get snubbed, right? Have you ever met anyone who, if you snub them, they want to kill you and your entire ethnicity? Probably not. That's Haman, right? But now all of his stuff, you know, he would have these dinner parties to talk about how much wealth he had, right? All of his stuff is now given to Esther, the queen, part of this captive people but it gets juicier. It turns out when Mordecai drops his top advisor, which was Haman, who's now 70 feet in the air, that creates an opening in the cabinet, right? And the opening in the cabinet goes to no one else but Mordecai. Mordecai gets Haman's job. So Esther gets Haman's stuff, his money, his chariots, his house. Mordecai gets his position his paycheck and bonuses, and he gets the king's ring. It said, by the way, uh, the author does something to kind of remind us of Haman's death by saying that the king took his ring. So as the bag is going over his head, he's being let out. Uh, Hajwer says, hey, wait just a minute. And then Haman's thinking, oh, maybe I have a chance. And, and Hajwer takes the ring, and then Haman goes to his death. A little bit of comic relief. You just have to look for it, okay? But there's still another bigger problem. Despite having this estate for Esther, and despite having this new position for Mordecai, uh, this terrible event where all the Jews are going to die is still on its way. So we have the second reversal beginning in verse 5. The unstoppable edict is stopped. The unstoppable edict is stopped. Here's what she says in verse 5. If it please the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, the thing and the thing seem right before the king, and I be pleasing in his eyes, let it be written to reverse the letters devised by Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, which he wrote to destroy the Jews, which are in all the king's provinces. For how can I endure to see the evil that shall come unto my people? Or how can I endure to see the destruction of my kindred? And the king Ahasuerus said unto Esther the queen and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and him they have hanged upon the gallows, because he laid his hand upon the Jews. <laughs> Write ye also for the Jews, as it liketh you in the king's name, and seal it with the king's ring. For the writing which is written in the king's name and sealed with the king's ring may no man reverse. Now hold on a second. Do you see what the author is doing? Ahasuerus, I don't know if you've seen this in Esther before, Ahasuerus had him put to death because of how close he was getting to his wife. Now the king seems to have a change of heart. He tried to lay his hands on the Jews. 
Verse 9, then were the king's scribes called at that time in the third month, that is the month of Sivan, on the three and twentieth day thereof, and it was written according to all that Mordecai commanded unto the Jews and to the lieutenants and deputies and rulers of the provinces which are from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces, and unto every province according to the writing thereof, and unto every people after their language, and to the Jews according to their writing and according to their language. And he wrote it in the king Ahasuerus' name and sealed it with the king's ring, and sent letters by post on horseback, and riders on mules, camels, and young dromedaries, wherein the king granted the Jews, which were in every city, to gather themselves together, and to stand for their life, to destroy, to slay, and to cause to perish all the power of the people and province that would assault them, both little ones and women. The little ones and women, by the way, are the people that were going to be assaulted, not the people the Jews are going after. All the little ones and women and to take the spoil of them for a prey. Again, that was the Persians' intention. Verse 12, Upon one day in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, namely, upon the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, which is the month Adar, the copy of the writing for a commandment to be given in every province was published unto all people, and that the Jews should be ready against that day to avenge themselves on their enemies. So the post that rode upon mules and camels went out, being hastened and pressed on by the king's commandment, and the decree was given at Shushan the palace. Have you noticed how the executive orders have been all over the place? First executive order. Every woman needs to obey her husband and send me all your girls because I need a new wife, right? That was pretty wacky. That's, that's going to make it on the evening cable news. The second executive order, all the Jews are going to die. Now we have a third one. Now we have a third one. Though he clearly can't reverse the edict itself because... That was the law. And that you would think that that law would, would stop emperors with this much power from making decisions when they're drunk. Unfortunately, it, it didn't. It just made it really bad when they did make those decisions. So he can't do that, but what he can do is uh, have as, as many forces in his empire as possible help the Jews defend themselves. He's calling all Jews to organize and to defend themselves. The armies clearly recognize that their emperor does not want them to kill the Jews. So the only people who were going to are then the, the, the people like Haman, the anti-Semites who would have been in the kingdom, the rogues who would, were going to use this day to take spoil and kill innocent people. Basically, the teeth has been taken out of the edict by this new edict. So the unstoppable edict is, in fact, stopped. There's a lot of phrasing, by the way, that's quite familiar. The Jews were going to be destroyed, killed, perish, right? And now they will be the ones destroying and killing and causing to perish in their defense. At one point, every man, woman, and child was going to be annihilated. Now, every man, woman, and child will be protected. This isn't simply a new decree. This is Haman's plans for the world completely turned on their head. And because of this... Beginning in verse 15, mourning is replaced with joy. And that's our third reversal. Mourning replaced with joy. Look at verse 15 in chapter 8. Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal apparel of blue and white and with a great crown of gold and with a garment of fine linen and purple. And the city of Shushan rejoiced and was glad. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. And in every province and in every city, whithersoever the king's commandment and his decree came, the Jews had joy and gladness, a feast and a good day. 
And many of the people of the land became Jews, for the fear of the Jews fell upon them. The Jews were about to be annihilated, now you have proselytes. You have people converting to their faith and trusting in Yahweh. So after Haman's plan is reversed, instead of having no Jews, you have more Jews. Instead of having uh, no places of worship for the Jews, you have more of them because people are like, man, there's something going on here. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to join this religion. It seems like a good idea. So, but most importantly, beside that, their mourning is replaced with joy. Have you, did you remember, we've talked about, the authors talked about what Mordecai was wearing before. And when you think about Mordecai, if, you, if the, the book of Esther is part of your biblical imagination, and you think about what Mordecai wears, you think of one or two scenes. In the earlier part of the story, you think of Mordecai wearing what? Sackcloth and ashes. In this part of the story, now you see Mordecai wearing royal apparel. It's not just a clothing change. We see that in the Bible, right? Saul gets his robe torn by Samuel and then torn more by David. At the end, the Philistines take it off, right? Well, here it's the opposite of that. (laughs) Mordecai is in sackcloth and ashes. Now, Mordecai is dressing like royalty, Because God has initiated a great reversal. God, the character who is always there but never seen, turns out to be more powerful than Haman and Ahasuerus put together. Now there's not mourning and fasting and weeping. Now they have light, gladness, joy, and honor. Now instead of hiding their identity, they're publishing their identity and people are wanting to become Jews. Instead of being killed, their numbers are increasing. Remember what Haman did after bringing his idea to the king? Let's kill all these people. The king says, okay, let's go have a drink. Well, now the people are are feasting and rejoicing. But there's another reversal. It doesn't stop there. Number four, the destroyers are destroyed. Look at chapter nine. The destroyers are destroyed. Now, in the 12th month, that is the month of Dar, on the 13th day of the same, when, uh, and by the way, this was Haman, according to their pagan gods, this was Haman's lucky day, right? You remember the casting of Lot's the Purr? Maybe it wasn't his lucky day. Because we finally got to Adar, which would be like our November, and, and here's what happens. The king's commandment, his decree, um, came out, and verse 2 says, The Jews gathered themselves together in their cities throughout all the provinces of the king of Ahasuerus to lay hand on such as sought their hurt, And no man could withstand them, for the fear of them fell upon all the people. Verse 3, all the rulers of the provinces and lieutenants and deputies and officers of the king helped the Jews, because the fear of Mordecai fell upon them. For Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame went out throughout all the provinces. For this man, Mordecai, waxed greater and greater. Thus the Jews smote all their enemies with a stroke of the sword and slaughter and destruction and did what they would unto those that hated them. Verse 6, no doubt these are people associated with Haman, 500 died. And then we have a list of names beginning in verse 7. I'm going to do my best to pronounce these, although because they're Persian translated into Hebrew, there's, I'm not even sure how to pronounce them. Now, as I read these, maybe when you read the Bible, sometimes you want to laugh at names and you feel guilty about that. Well, it turns out, I found out in studying Esther, um, these are actually humorous names. 
Esther was a common Persian name. And her name was originally Hadassah. That was her Jewish name. Uh, You'll remember if you go back to chapter 1 or 2 that uh, she got renamed as Esther. That was a Persian name, Ishtar. These are Persian names, but they're not common names. They're really rare. They're not just rare. They sound goofy even to the original readers. Why? Haman picked goofy names for his children because he's Haman. (laughs) Here's who they killed, Parsh, Parshadantha, Dalphin, Azpatha, Poratha, Adalia, Eridatha, Parmashta. Now, now, why did Haman pick weird names? He thought a lot of himself. Now, he thought a lot of himself, and it, it appears that these sons that are listed here all the way through verse 9 were part of his plan, part of the 500 men that were trying to kill the Jews and were associated with Haman, and that's why uh, they killed them. You know, you remember when Haman had one of those bragging parties? He didn't just talk about how much stuff he had. He talked about how he talked about his children. And now they're taken away from him. These adult sons are, are that he named so ridiculously because he was such an arrogant, self-centered individual. These adult sons are taking fr- taken from him as well. Everything that Haman put his stock in, everything that Haman thought would help him come out on top of Mordecai. Everything that Haman thought made him special, everything that Haman thought made him better than other people, everything that that Haman thought made him to be deserving of the adoration of others as he went out of the palace, it's now gone. First his wealth and his stuff, now his own sons. Because again, there's another character in the story. This is not just Haman and Esther. It's not just Ahasuerus and Mordecai. God is here too, not just in blessing, but in judgment. Uh, Now, the reason I say that I believe these 10 sons were working with Haman and not just innocent people is because of the end of verse 10. They they don't lay their hands on the spoil. They they could have, but they weren't bloodthirsty and necessarily out for revenge. They were, again, defending themselves. So the destroyers are destroyed. In verse 12, uh, the king says to Esther, uh, he reports to her about uh, what's happened. In verse th- 13, uh, Esther re- requests that the sons also be hung on the gallows, and so they were. Haman is now impaled, and all of his dreams of the future are impaled with it. Again, this is not, this is not G-rated Disney. This is more R, and that's sometimes how God works. Verse 15, for the Jews that were in Shushan gathered themselves together on the 14th day, also at the month of Dar, and slew 300 men at Shushan. But on the prey, again, they laid not their hand. Verse 16, but the other Jews that were in the king's provinces gathered themselves together and stood for their lives and had rest from their enemies and slew of their foes 70 and 5,000, but they laid not their hands on the prey. The very thing in which Haman's, Haman found his pride is lost. And ironically, despite being occupied by the Persians and being taken over by this great empire, the Jews are now safer than they had been before. Now, it didn't appear it was going to happen that way when Esther was taken to the palace when she had to marry this wicked man. It, it didn't appear that way when Mordecai was scheduled to be killed. But now the Jews are safer for all of the tragedy that Esther and Mordecai endured. 
Reversal number five, captives celebrate victory. Verse 17 of chapter nine, captives celebrate victory. On the 13th day of the month of Dar and on the 14th day of the same, they rested and made it a day of feasting and gladness. But the Jews that were at Shushan assembled together on the 13th day thereof and on the 14th day and the 15th and made it a day of feasting and gladness. Therefore, the Jews of the villages that dwelt in the unwalled towns made the 14th day of the month of Dar a day of gladness and feasting and a good day and of sending portions or gifts one to another. Verse 20, And Mordecai wrote these things and sent letters unto all the Jews that were in the provinces of the king Ahasuerus, both nigh and far, to establish this among them that they should keep the 14th day of the month of Dar and the 15th day of the same yearly. And the days wherein the Jews rested from their enemies, and the month which was turned unto them from sorrow to joy, and from mourning into a good day, that they should make them days of feasting and joy, and of sending portions one to another, and gifts to the poor. And the Jews undertook to do as they had begun, and as Mordecai had written unto them. Because Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of all the Jews, had devised against the Jews to destroy them, and had cast pur, that is the lot, to consume them. And to destroy them. But when Esther came before the king, this is the, the story Mordecai is retelling. He commanded by letters that his wicked device, which he devised against the Jews, should return upon his own head, and that he and his son should be hanged on the gallows. Wherefore, they called these days Purim after the name of Pur. Therefore, for all the words of this letter and of that which they had seen concerning the matter and which had come unto them, the Jews ordained and took upon them on their seed and upon all such as joined themselves unto them, that's the new converts, so as it should not fail that they would keep these two days according to their writing and according to their appointed time every year. If you go skip down to the verse 32, and the decree of Esther confirmed these matters of Purim, and it was written in the book. Is it just ironic to you uh, that the Jews would start this feast named after a pagan practice? Right? Now the Jews had a lot of feasts that God gave them in the law. Now they're going to have this thing called Purim, and they they, uh, they actually celebrate it. Even in Jesus' day, there's a small reference to it in one of the Gospels. They, they have this day of celebration or days of celebration for some of them named after a pagan practice, things that people did because they didn't trust in the God of Israel. That is cast per. The, the, the thing that they attempted to find their luck in, the, the thing that they attempted to use to get their polytheistic gods on their side, the Jews now name a festival after it in order to kind of, let's be honest, they're kind of making fun of it. (laughs) Haman, Haman thought the roll of this dice would give him everything he needed to be successful in every way he wanted. And the Jews say, let's make a feast and name it Purim. This is great irony. This is also, again, a great reversal because these are captive people. The Jews, listen, the Jews are not initiating a feast because they're back in the land. The Jews are not initiating a feast because the Messiah has come yet. Listen, they're not all back in the land, though some of them have started to go back to Jerusalem. Not everything is okay. Not everything is restored. Do you get this? Not everything is okay again for God's people, but they decide to start a feast. Why? 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 As a way to remind themselves, as a way to remind themselves that their God, who has made all these promises, was going to keep them, even if it meant reversing their circumstances in amazingly dramatic ways. 
they felt they needed a regular reminder that God did that because they thought they were liable to forget. So this festival named after pagan clay cubes then is initiated. The scheme that Haman hatched against the Jews wasn't just canceled. In fact, if it was canceled, it wouldn't have had the same effect because now we realize there are all these rogue groups who are enemies of the Jews in the kingdom. And by Haman giving his edict, what he did essentially is wipe out all of these small pockets of resistance against the Jews that were in Persia. It's not that Haman's plan failed. Do you get this? Haman's plan was reversed. And God's people were rescued in the process. One more reversal I want to look at, and then we'll talk about what this means for us. Chapter 10, Haman's enemy is honored. Haman's enemy is honored. Look at chapter 10, and beginning in verse 1. The king of Ahasuerus laid a tribute upon the land and upon the isles of the sea. And all the acts of his power and of his might and the declaration of the greatness of Mordecai, whereunto the king advanced him, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? It's kind of like a footnote. If you want to know more about Ahasuerus, there's other books about that. This book isn't about Ahasuerus. Do you see what's going on here? Here's how the book ends, not with the king, but with somebody else. Verse 3, For Mordecai the Jew was next unto King Ahasuerus, and great among the Jews, and accepted of the multitude of his brethren, seeking the wealth of his people, and speaking peace to all his seed. The word ends with a reference to the descendants of Mordecai and the descendants of Israel, as if to say, Haman's line has ended, but the Jews continue on. Not just the Jews, but God's people continue on. Haman thought he was going to wipe out Mordecai's seed. He thought he was going to wipe out these people related to Mordecai who believed in this one God. But now we're in chapter 10. Mordecai not only has his job, but also has his influence and power. Haman's seed, Haman's descendants are in the capital city on poles. And Mordecai's descendants have peace. Have peace. Haman's enemy is honored. And in this final scene, Ahasuerus is no longer a threat to the Jews. No, but a means that God used to keep the Jews, to protect the Jews. Haman's greatest enemy is honored in his place. Haman's fear was that this man would not bow down low enough, but we realize now that Haman should have had much, much, much greater fears when he started messing with the one true God who created all things, the maker of heaven and earth. His fears were not nearly what they should have been. All right, so what's going on in episode four? What's going on here, and what does this have to do with us? Well, the Jews reading this, God's people, saw history, and we see this throughout the Old Testament, they saw history as a record of God's promises, right? And that's what they wrote about. That's what we see in Genesis and in Exodus. God making promises. God makes a promise to Adam and Eve that though they've fallen into sin, though they've royally messed everything up, And though nothing will be the same again in their world because sin has now entered their hearts and entered the hearts of every other human that would come along the scene, God made a promise. 
God made a promise that one day, a descendant of Eve, one day, a son of a woman, one day someone is going to crush the serpent's head. In other words, someone is going to come along and do something to reverse all of this. That was God's promise. The Jews looked to that. They waited for it. They anticipated it. God made more promises. He calls out Abraham from idolatry and from paganism and makes him promises about a family that he was going to have. A family who would be unlimited like the stars. A, A family of faith who would also come to trust in this same God and the Messiah that he was going to one day send. God made a promise to Judah that this Messiah would come from him. God made a promise to David that one of his sons would sit on an eternal throne. God made a promise to Isaiah that this Messiah would come and would suffer, and in suffering would save people from their sins. But hold on a second. Hold on a second. Adam and Eve didn't see any of their children defeat the serpent. In fact, what Adam and Eve saw was all their children fall to the serpent. God said there was going to be this great war where, the, where sin and the devil are defeated, but Adam and Eve, didn't, they don't see that. So God made this amazing promise, but it doesn't seem to have taken place yet. Abraham had some kids. He had some kids. But not like the stars of the sky. He didn't have a family like that as he closed his eyes in death. Oh, and David had sons. He had a lot of sons. Wait till 2 Samuel. They lived some interesting lives, didn't they? And some of them even were royal, and some of them actually had the opportunity to sit on a throne, but not a throne of the world. They sat on a throne uh, on a sliver for a sliver of land in the Middle East, and then they, they, well, basically David's descendants do this. They rule for a little bit, they do dumb stuff, and they die, right? I, I, I hate to spoil the story if you haven't read it, but that's what happens. They rule for a little while in a tiny section of the Middle East. They do dumb stuff, and they die. So God makes all of these promises, but what God's people see as they look at the history of God and his people is they see a lot of promises and not they're not yet being fulfilled. And that's why there's so much hope for them. And by the way, it's also why there's so much hope for us in this story of Esther. Because even though there's a lot of God's promises that we have not seen yet kept, here's what we know from the book of Esther. It's this, God will reverse whatever circumstances necessary to keep his promises. He will reverse whatever circumstances necessary to keep his promises. Isn't that exactly what happens in the book of Esther? God has to intervene in Ahasuerus' life. He intervenes in Haman's life. He, he intervenes in Esther and Mordecai's life. And he reverses things completely. Sometimes circumstances get so bad that God has to completely spin things on their head in order for him to keep his promises. But here's what God's people can can rest in and what God's people can know at the end of the day. Whatever God has to do in order to make good on his word, he's going to do it. He's going to do it. So what does this have to do with us? 
Well, we, like God's people in, of old, believe that God is a maker of promises. But the problem is that as you and as I look at our circumstances around us, it's not always clear how those promises are going to be kept. We, also, we, we live in a world in which people make promises and don't keep them. And so maybe sometimes we think that about God. That maybe some of this is just a little bit too good to be true. Uh, if you read Revelation, sometimes it's difficult. And not, not all the symbolism, maybe, although some of that's difficult, but this, the, the promises that come at the end. Do, do you and I, let's just pause for a second. If, if, you've been around, if you've been around long enough, if you've been betrayed and hurt enough, you've seen enough misery and suffering in the world, do you and I really believe at the end of the day that there's going to be this place with no pain, no tears, no death? Now we're supposed to say, all say amen. Of course we believe that. But has, is it ever hard to believe when, you're, when you see so much pain, so, much, so many tears, and so much death? And you think at the end of the day there's going to be a new earth and it's, it's going to be like this? Wait a second. Is that, is that really going to happen? Is God really going to do that? God has made a lot of promises to us, hasn't he? God has promised that Jesus will return and when he comes, everybody's going to fall down before him, that he is going to be known as king. Jesus, by the way, is already king. There's already a kingdom, but one day the difference is people are going to see it. But as you look around your world and as you look on social media and as you watch the news, does this world look like, does it really look like anytime soon it's going to be under the control of Jesus and that people are going to know that? <laughs> God promises to us as his children to empower the gospel message, right? The Apostle Paul, who maybe on some days it's, it's hard for us to identify with such a man. The Apostle Paul said that, that the gospel, this gospel, this good news is the power of God to salvation. But we share it with our friends and they ignore us. We invite them to church and they snub us. You offer to start a Bible study with them, they don't want to do it. You want to give them a tract, they reject it. You want to sit down and talk to them about their soul and they're not interested. And you think, man, that, I, I, God says there's power in the gospel, but I haven't seen it change anyone's life that I've tried to witness to in so long. Is God really going to keep that promise? Is he really going to make good on what he has said he is going to do with his message? Because I look at my circumstances and I just don't see it. Maybe something more difficult. God's promised that he will build his church. But then you're keeping up with the culture, the, the current culture in our world, and you're thinking, man, this is, this is not good. I, I don't see churches becoming more influential in the next 25 years. I don't see us completely changing people's lives if culture continues like this, and there's this thing going on, and there's this thing going on, and everybody hates Christians. And you can soak in that long enough, and it'll, it'll really get to you. Because you're looking at your circumstances and asking, how are these circumstances going to lead to God keeping his promise? But friend, that's the wrong question. God doesn't have to use our current circumstances to keep his promises. God can do whatever he wants, whatever he needs to, to make good on his promises. Even if we don't see how it's going to happen. God has promised that he's going to take care of your needs. He's promised to take care of your needs. He, he did that with the Philippians. But, but you're looking at the economy and you're looking at your retirement account and you look at the price of eggs. 
Like, yeah, I, I believe God's going to take care of my needs. And that's what, and if somebody asks you in a connection group, brother or sister, do you believe God will take care of your needs? You'll say, well, of course he will. I believe that. But in your mind, you're thinking, man, I don't know. I don't know how that bill's going to get paid. I don't know how I'm going to pay for my kid's wedding. Maybe I just won't let them get married or I'll tell my daughter to elope. Have you thought about that? My daughter just turned five and, I'm not, and we're not struggling or anything, but I thought, man, do, do, do you really have to pay for the daughter's wedding? Maybe that won't be culturally necessary 20 or 30 or 40 years down the road. <laughs> 45. But I hope you understand what I'm saying. Friends, this is what we do, and this is why the book of Esther, there's no mistake in the canon. Every book of the Bible belongs here for a reason, because God's people needed it and need it today. And here's why the book of Esther may be in the Bible. Because we look at these promises of God, and then we look at our circumstances, and we say, how is God going to keep his promises? God's promised to make you more like Jesus. But then you look at the events of today. You didn't get into the word this morning, but Jesus loves the word. If you're, if you're becoming more like Jesus, why, do you, why is it so easy for you to just not read your Bible? Why do you respond to that person at work so, uh, so ungracefully if God's making you more like Jesus? Why do you keep having arguments with your spouse if God's making you more like Jesus? Why are you so impatient with your kids if God's making you more like Jesus? And you can look at that promise and say, God, I don't see it. I don't see it. But the Bible does not teach us that circumstances are perfect indicators of how God will make good on his promises, friends. The Bible does not teach that. In fact, the Bible teaches something so different and yet so much better that no matter what's going on in your circumstances, you can rest assured that God will do what he said he is going to do. And I can rest in that too. God will reverse whatever circumstances are necessary in order to keep his word. So let me ask you this. Is there anything in your life tonight that you need God to turn around? Is there anything in your life that as I've been even talking about this story that you've been thinking, man, I, I don't know how God is going to fix this. I don't know how God is going to get me through this. I don't know how I'm going to survive with my faith intact as I go through this. Is there anything that you need God to to enter and change things around? Is there any circumstance that you desperately need God to reverse? Now, now let me say this. Let me say this. Um, if you're a Christian, you should know that he can. Because if you're a Christian, here, here's what has happened at some point in your life. You were once outside of God's friendship. You were once outside of God's blessing. God loved you, but you weren't able to benefit from that love because you didn't know him, and you didn't know him because you were in your sin, and God hates sin, but it's the thing that stamps and defines us. But listen, friend, if you know Jesus, the moment that you trusted Christ, the moment that you received him as your savior, God performed an incredible reversal in your life. He took you from darkness to light, going to hell, to going to heaven, having no righteousness in his sight, to having all the righteousness of Jesus when he looks at you. Listen, if God can reverse that, by the way, if he hasn't reversed that in your life, talk to us, he can. But listen, if God, if you know Jesus, if God has reversed that in his life, 
don't you think he can take care of whatever, whatever is bothering you tonight? Don't you think that he can take care of whatever worries you tonight? Don't you think that he can take care of whatever makes you lose sleep? How God may turn it around may not be what you're expecting. And by the way, when God turns it around may not be what you're expecting. There are some things that God may intervene in next week. There are other things that he won't intervene in until we get to heaven. And there's a lot of stuff in between there, isn't it? But here's what I'm going to ask you to do tonight as we have our time of invitation. Whatever you need God to turn around, would you ask him to? Would you ask him to turn it around? Would you ask him to help you trust him in the process? Friend, this is not just an entertaining story. This is a life-giving, hope-giving, confidence-giving story for the people of God. Because as we look at this final episode of Esther, we're reminded that God, though he has made a lot of promises, he will keep every single one, no matter what he has to do to reverse the circumstances that we're in. And everyone said? Let's Let's all stand. Let's have our heads bowed.